Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Winder, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. And as always, I have a question for you. Do you know what lies behind the shortest chapter in the Bible? In today's podcast and post, we continue our series on Psalm's greatest hits with a look at the 117th Psalm. Not only is this the shortest chapter in the scripture, but it's placed in the exact center of the whole thing. Join me now as we read between the lines of a song which has been sung since the 3rd century BC. And watch how it invites us to see beyond everything. Hello everybody and thank you for coming back to yet another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. I'm your host. My name is Kevin Winder. I like to serve the world as an online pastor, author, and uncoach, among many other things that I do in the world. I'm just like you. And folks, I do want to invite you as we look at the new year. Many of you are probably looking at your life, and a lot of times uh, we start the new year with new resolutions, although the New Year's resolution thing is a little bit tired, but uh, it does give us a fresh perspective. It's kind of like starting the climb of the mountain all over again. Um, And sometimes you might realize, you know, this year I'd really like to level things up. I'd like to be in a better place by the time I finish this year. I'd like to be in a better relationship. I'd like to grow spiritually. I'd like to grow emotionally. I'd like to get over myself, perhaps, or uh, advance my career or change my options or my situation or whatever. And all those types of things require a set of inertia, a little bit of maybe direction, some contemplation. You need a perspective change or you need a motivation to just do it. That's what uncoaching does, right? Uh, people look at life coaches and they say, hey, give me you know, tools to make my life better. And the life coach simply adds effort and output on top of everything you're already doing. An uncoach, which I do, is I deconstruct your life. Uh, we got to take the old kitchen out if you want the new one. And so we start with subtraction before we get to addition. If that's interesting to you, if you'd like to explore what that looks like, you can just reach me at kevinwinder.com. Remember, I spell my name like the number seven. Um, And I'd be happy to chat with you. It's not a program. You don't charge for this. I know. I'm crazy. I don't charge for anything on my content. I give it all away for free. Doesn't mean it's worth nothing. I think you'll find quite the opposite to be true. Uh, it's the wisdom of God through the context of friendship. So that's on coaching. I invite you to consider it. Also, while you're at my website, sign up for my newsletter, Winder's Windshield. Uh, many of you are listening to that through that right now. It comes every Sunday morning into your inbox. Uh, but let's get back to our series. We are in this ongoing series where every 10 weeks we look at the Psalms, we pause, we take a deep breath. Uh, We listen, we contemplate, we consider. And today we come to the 117th Psalm. And it is podcast number 316. So let's just jump right in. The 117th Psalm is directly in the middle of the Bible. 
It has 594 chapters preceding it, and it has 594 chapters following it. It's the shortest chapter in the whole of Scripture with only two verses. And while we don't specifically know who wrote it, uh, there's a couple of camps on this. Some say, oh, it's a Psalm of David, just because that's what we think all the Psalms are. Uh, but many scholars actually think that this was likely a hymn that predated him. And the reason for that is that this Psalm is a messianic Psalm. It's part of a group of Psalms, uh, chapters 113 through 118, known as the Halal Psalms. Uh, halal is the Hebrew word for praise. So they think these were ancient, really old hymns that have been sung. Uh, these, you know, have roots that stem back to Hebrew captivity in Egypt and were likely the same song psalms that were sung in Jesus' day over the Passover. So they think this is a tradition that carried over all the way back to the captivity in Egypt, all the way through, uh, and that these were sung. And so you get a little glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, where the disciples during the Passover, along with Jesus, are actually singing psalms. Of course, it doesn't say, hey, they're singing this one. Uh, but you get this sense that this has been around for a while. And kind of seen from this vantage point, especially from the Passion, uh, this psalm actually takes on a new layer of depth as the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Jewish longing and waiting. Okay, so let's just read the psalm. Uh, find your center. Try and be present and let the words marinate in your soul. Okay? Here goes. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, Right away, this has this tells us this doesn't sound like modern day religion. Anything that includes all the nations and all the peoples is certainly not exclusive like modern day religion. This sounds very inclusive. Everybody, the whole world, all people, all nations, praise the Lord for his his love, his steadfast love. <laughs> is great toward us. Toward who? All nations, all peoples. Like that's wider than Judaism. That's wider than Islam. That's wider than Hinduism. It's wider than Christianity. So that's really important, right? Now, the word elu in Hebrew means to praise or worship. Now, obviously, what I'm driving at here is that that's in the plural form, like let us, let us praise him. And the invitation is corporate. It's not just personal. It's, yeah, you can read this from a personal perspective. 
But in reality, this is, you know, 100% a corporate prayer. Like this is a big deal from that perspective. The uh, object here of this praise textually is Yahweh. It's Y-W-Y-H, which they would never write out the word Yahweh because they would not want to pronounce the name of God. It's too holy to put on your lips. And so Yahweh was the name of the Hebrew God. Now, it's really important to kind of understand who Yahweh is from their perspective. This is not just a tribal appeal to the God of a particular religion. This is how it's almost always understood. It's, it's not. And you can see that even though in the scripture, the people who hold to uh, this faith system layered it up and against other gods and other beliefs, of course, and they were tribal in their application. But it's the intent of this is not. And I can show you that we have to understand what they meant by this name of God, which is not pronounced. The Hebrew Shema, uh, which means the hearing, is a statement uh, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And you're going to hear this. You'll, you'll recognize it. Um, and when I say it, it, it gets at who Yahweh is, okay? That's really important. So this is the Shema. It's a reminder. It's the hearing of who Yahweh is, okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, when the religious leaders, the Jewish Sadducees and Pharisees, came to Jesus, they said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest law? And he said, oh, well, you, you know what it is. It's, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he said, the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself, right? So here we have this sense of who God is, right? This is the Lord, the God, our Lord. The Lord is one. Now, this is not just a, a claim of monotheism. What he's saying is one in terms of convergence. All of things, everything comes together. So when, when you hear this Yahweh, praise the Yahweh, all nations, he's saying, lift up, you know, bow down, Lift up the name of Yahweh, this Lord who is one. Like all of the highest trajectory of all your hearts goes into one place. And this is why Jesus points to this later in his ministry and says, look, if you get that one thing right, you get the, you get the whole of all religion. If you get this one thing wrong, you, no matter how detailed and good you are at your religion, you still suck. Paraphrase, of course. This is important because this psalm and many like it are not driving merely to a my God can beat up your God monotheism, which is how we always frame it. 
but one of this oneness, which is integration, it's convergence. And thus, any tradition that strives to find the God before and above all gods is essentially seeking the convergence of all things, that oneness. And I have talked to Muslims and Hindus and others who have share this exact same idea of God, that, it, that the God they worship, the God they contemplate, is bigger than their religion and everybody else's too. And that is an interesting perspective because now you can see how it's possible all peoples could do this. So verse 5 of the above passage in Deuteronomy is quoted by Jesus as the greatest commandment of all religion, meaning if you get that right, you get them all right. If you miss it, you miss the heart of every system of faith. This That's the invitation of Psalm 117. It's to praise the one Yahweh is the invitation past any religious system unto that which is beyond everything. I think this is beautiful. I love this. I love when we can get beyond our tribal boundaries. The corporate invitation here to all people extends beyond these religious systems by emphasizing this Hebrew word guim, which means nations, or amin, which means clans. This is calling together of everyone, regardless of where we are from or what status we possess in life or what we actually believe, because there's no way two people, even in the same tribe and same religion, can believe the exact same way. Life experience is too diverse. So it's like this whole, all these perspectives converging into this one this one reality. And too often we read scripture from within a religious frame or a tradition. Of course we do, because like if you're going to study scripture, you're going to do so from within a religious framework. That's how we always present it. And it's really hard to extract it out of that. It's, it's hard to take this text beyond the walls of our temples and our buildings and our religious frames. But if this psalm does originate from the slavery and captivity of the children of Israel, then it predates the law and Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Hinduism, as many of us would know them. If this is a group of people in captivity praising the one thing that's bigger than it all, this is an invitation to a huge global audience. And the trajectory here, then for all people, all times, and all tradition, is to exalt or worship our maker. However, that is defined by your tiny little tribe or religion. This means the intended audience cannot be larger. The, the funnel is as wide as the universe. But because it's a messianic uh, him, it's also as narrow as Christ. Now, to give a proper explanation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is an amazing word theologically, it will blow your mind, and it would be way too vast of an undertaking to put into this podcast. But suffice it to say that hesed 
is what we know as unmerited grace. Like it's one thing if, you know, God gave you a pass because you were super good. That's religion. How can I climb the stairway to heaven? But said is unmerited grace. It's, it's favor you don't deserve. It's favor you didn't earn. It's favor your religion couldn't get. It can't capture. It's not worthy. It's divine kindness. It's this ongoing, unceasing compassion or what people call everlasting love. So those definitions all fall into this hesed, unmerited grace. And it's an amazing word. It's used throughout the Psalms. It's used in prophetic writings. It's used in Genesis and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea. It's throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture. It's on display in countless other texts. And I've identified over 130 different places in Scripture where the theme of unmerited divine kindness towards us is on display. I invite you to check it out on my website, kevinweiner.com. Go to Going Deeper and look at the list of verses under the heading um, (laughs) Restoration, Not Retribution. The loving kindness of God means that we are not condemned by retributive justice. God is not keeping a scorecard. If he did, you'd lose. But grace is this idea of restorative justice. He's just wiping it away in an unmerited fashion. Not because our religious obedience or spiritual success, it's not superior morality. You're not that good. Trust me. It's it's because God loves us and chooses to reveal himself or herself, however you want to frame that, to us in this kind of way. Has said the grace or loving kindness of God is why this is a messianic psalm. The word messianic means anointed. It's an anointed psalm. It's pointing to what the Hebrew scripture always say, the Mashiach, the anointed one. The Hebrew tradition is an advent. It's a waiting. It's an anticipation for the kind of society that is governed by chesed, loving kindness, mercy, unmerited grace towards each other. In the sense that God has given it to us, we give it to others. We give people a pass. And not the kind of society where man has asked that we get a king placed over us. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 8, 5, and 7. It's an alternative type of leadership. Messianic leadership is, is the alternative. It frees people, and they live in peace and true justice, restorative justice, not retributive justice. Throughout Hebrew Scripture, the hope and promise of this anointed one, which means Messiah, which means Christ, would bring about a new world. And so when Jesus, who has fulfilled literally hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of Hebrew prophecies, his lineage, as you can read in Matthew chapter 1, is, is the perfect 
lineage and a descendant. And he is tied perfectly throughout Scripture. Uh, and so we know that there are, there's evidence that he literally lived on this earth, that he did acts of miracles where he healed people. He's, he transformed lives. He subverted everything, demonstrating all of this with accompanying works. Like I said, he subverted the institutional powers of religion and state and family and anything you could place over a person. And he restored the faith of people out from their religion, beyond their religion, and back to that of their forefathers, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, who also shared this faith before the law. Do you see this? This is how this Messiah, this is a psalm that's messianic. It, it points us out of the framework of religion and onto something beyond everything. And this is the good news, the Ehuangelion, the gospel, is this return to the faith and liberation from the religion. That's exactly the work of Christ. Now, this context opens up why this chapter is the jewel at the very center of the whole Bible, right? I mean, all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, as the New Testament says. It's another way of saying all perspectives, all religions are invited to come to liberate from religious and political and economic oppression and experience the unmerited, never-ending grace, loving kindness, and faithfulness of God. That sounds pretty good. I'm thinking about our life right now, our world, and how in the last few years it's become America has become worse than it's ever become. And I think, gosh, we could really use a leadership style like that um, and see what that really looks like. I don't think it's going to happen from our political spectrum. Wherever you land, the answer is never our government. This is the point of something messianic. The government is the problem. It's not the answer. Religion is the problem. It's not the answer. If you miss this truth, you've missed all the trajectory of Scripture. This is the point. This is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. This is found at the very middle of it. It's the crown jewel. So how can we experience this hesed, this grace, despite our political oppression, our financial suffering, despite our struggles, our weaknesses, our many, many sins that wash over our head like a wave? My suggestion is to take whatever framework for spirituality that you possess, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian, whether you're an atheist, uh, maybe you're just kind of an agnostic sitting on the sidelines wondering if any of it's true, but you, you kind of wonder, you suspect. Maybe you're just a spiritual, unaffiliated person. However you describe yourself. Take the framework for spirituality that you have and follow it as far back as you can. Uh, whether you 
you know, come from astrology or New Age or Scientology. It's not about taking those forward. You see, this is about taking it back. And at some point, what you're going to realize is the same thing that every one of us has to realize. You can only take it so far back. And then everything falls apart. You lose the frameworks. You lose the religion. It starts to deconstruct after you strip it from all of these frames of history, these wars, these prisons, these ideologies that have crept in and taken over. All the people who are in power, who control it, are gone. And you end up with a man or a person or a woman or an idea that is somehow yearning, longing, searching. And you'll realize there you are. Uh, once you kind of get free of that framework and looking back, taking it as far back as you can, you'll realize there's others that are older than yours, other beliefs, other frameworks. And, and those don't necessarily mean they're any more correct than the one you're abandoning here. But if that's the point you have to let go Yes, that's the point we all get to. We have to say, oh, gosh, this is really just a culturally contrived framework to get at something that's beyond everything. And that letting go is this word for exalt, to worship, to praise, to reach while you bow. It's how you become free of the framework. It's how you get out. You have to ask the questions which marginalize you if they're uncomfortable to those in power because they, they know that they, they don't have the answer, they can't keep you in the tiny box when the reality is so much bigger than the box. See, we realize that it's too small. Our religion, our frame, it's too late in human history to get behind or get out in front of the love of God, which has preceded all of us. And that's the big discovery here. The chesed has been there all along. And that's where we want to get to. And at some point, we find ourselves without a guide. You'll be standing there in the midst of human history with a question and a hope and a wonder. Without a history, without a tradition, and without a religion, everything stripped bare, just us and our maker. I can't think of anything better. I can't think of a better way to move forward than to find it by going back. And that's the point of Psalm 117. So there, in that moment, if, if we have an inner posture which bows, not prideful, I believe that we will meet grace. And there we will meet the anointed one who does not hold our sins against us. And that, everybody, all nations, all clans, is the foundation of a new world. <laughs>